Well, good morning, church. So my name is Chad. If I haven't met you, I'd like to welcome you to the journey. And so uh, I'm excited to be up here. And so before we get started, I would just like to say how thankful I am for you all. Uh, these last six months have been such a blessing for me. Uh, you all have been gracious and loving towards my family. And so um, we've really enjoyed it here. And so I want to communicate that from the bottom of my heart. I haven't had the opportunity to really do that. And so um, I just want to take that opportunity to thank you all as a church. And also, I want to take this opportunity uh, just to say how thankful I am for Jordan and for what he means to us as this church. Um, I'm thankful for his leadership, the way that he leads us. I get to see that on a firsthand basis, day in and day out. Um, I want you all to know how much he loves you guys. He loves you all so fiercely. Uh, it is such a good thing to see him love you all. And I'm also thankful that uh, he is faithful to the word, that he agonizes over the word, that he desires to teach it rightly. Um, he doesn't shy away from the hard parts. And so I'm just so thankful for the way that he leads us. And so I hope that you, as you have opportunity, I hope that you can tell Jordan, uh, even though he's not here today with us, I hope that you can find a moment to tell him how appreciative you are of him. And so uh, as you do that, uh, I'd ask that you remind him that I said all these nice things about him because my six-month <laughs> review is coming up. So um, I'd really appreciate that. Um, so if you're new to the journey, one of our core tenets here is that we believe in expositional preaching. We believe in the power of God's Word and our typical practice is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, large passages of Scripture. So we just came out of um, Ecclesiastes. We've preached through the Sermon on the Mount. And so we want our study diet to be expositional. We want to unpack the Word for what it is, right? That's where we want to feast, right? And so sometimes, though, it's appropriate for us to have topical sermons like what we're getting into right now. And so those have value, but in terms of a diet, we want to view those as a snack, right? We don't want to make a habit of our entire diet being a snack. And so just as an example, my snack of choice is ice cream and specifically medium cookie dough blizzards. So there are value in those cookie dough blizzards. I can tell you they are good for my mood. They are good for my mental health. But if that is the only thing that I feasted on, uh, I would have serious problems with my gut, right? So, our current series is topical, right? We've been talking about gender and sexuality, and there's value there because of the world that we live in, right? But we still want to preach faithfully based on what God's Word says and not what I say. And so, I don't want to cherry-pick what it means. I don't want to cherry-pick what God's Word means or what it says in order to justify my opinions or our opinions here. And so just to give you an example, several years ago I was driving and I got tired to what I was listening to in the car and so I was flipping through the dial, came to the low end of the FM stations and I, I heard a Catholic radio call-in show. And so I was like, oh, this ought to be interesting. And so this woman calls in uh, to this priest and he's answering all these questions and she calls in and she says, hey, I've been reading my Bible and I can't find where it says we're to confess our sins to the priest. And so the priest said, the Bible teaches us to confess our sins. Next caller. And I'm like, holy cow. 
You know, does the Bible teach us to confess our sins? Yes, it, it absolutely does. But it doesn't teach us to confess our sins to a priest. If you look at all those different passages where we're taught to confess our sins, it says nothing about that. And so, in the same way, this particular topic that we're talking about today, it's easy for me to toss out red meat, for us to take it out of context, or to just take it as it is, right? And to feel good about ourselves, to think that, hey, we're right and they're wrong. And if you're here, you're probably in agreement already with God's view on gender and sexuality. And so it's tempting just to take God's word and, and to use it to validate those opinions. But we want to examine this topic in light of all scripture, right? And there's a lot of scripture that talks about this. And so I hope today that we will see what God's word says and not what I say or what we've been preaching. We want to see what God says. And so I hope that as we go through all of this scripture today that you'll flip along with me. So my prayer is that his word will penetrate our hearts and our minds today. And so if you've, if you've missed the last few weeks, we've examined God's good design when it comes to our gender and sexuality. So we've seen that we are made in the image of God, that we are image bearers of God the creator. We've looked at the design and purpose of man, and we've looked at the design and purpose of women, right? And we've also talked about counterfeits, how the world and our sin have corrupted God's good design. And so we're going to see that same pattern today as we examine the history of counterfeits to gender and sexuality that's revealed in Scripture. And so specifically, we want to see that this isn't a new issue. This is not unique to where we stand today in 2022. It's not unique to our modern time and culture. And so this is a hard word to preach. And it's not because the Bible isn't clear. It's a divisive word. It's divisive even here in Southern Illinois. It puts us at odds with a large segment of our population. And so we wanna remember that our purpose isn't to create an us versus them, but we are called to beg others to be reconciled to God. And so may God grant us grace and wisdom to do just that. So if you have your copy of God's word, turn to Romans chapter one for me. So in Romans chapter one, I'm gonna start reading from verse 18. This is what God's word says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, they gave them over... God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being fulfilled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And we're going to continue on through chapter 2 a little bit. So therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you, lightly, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubborn, stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself in your word and in your good design for us. We thank you that your word has the power to save. We put our trust in you and your word alone and not in ourselves. We pray for grace and wisdom as we dive into this topic, that we would accept your word as the truth that it is. We thank you for your presence and your spirit among us today. Amen. So, given that we like to preach expositionally, we could spend months and months and months on this passage, and that would be really beneficial because there is so much, so much in there. Uh, but because we are moving through this so quickly, like I said, it would be easy to throw out red meat, to, to just be excited, to cheer on the wrath of God, right? To cheer on the wrath being revealed because of other people's sin. And quite frankly, churches have done that with this passage all through history. And so if we just stop there, that would put us in an us first them mentality. And we would be thanking God that, hey, we're not like them, right? We would be no different than that Pharisee who stood outside the temple praying, thank you, God, that I am not like that sinner, that tax collector over there. And so we want to resist that mindset, and we want to dig into that truth, right? We want to dig in right here. So in this passage, we want to see how Paul demonstrates that man counterfeits the divine and good purpose of God, 
We're going to see how we distort his truth and deform it to fit our own desires and how, uh, and how that consequence fits with that counterfeit. So off the bat, we see God's wrath, and we want to have a right understanding of what that wrath is. This wrath is not like our wrath. It's not like man's wrath. Our wrath is tainted by sin. Our wrath is unstable and uncontrolled. It's inconsistent. It's erratic. We're prone to fly off the handle. If you're a parent here, you, you know what I'm talking about. When that child just gets under your skin and that wrath bubbles up, right? That's not the wrath that we're talking about. God's wrath, it's perfect, it's settled, and it's controlled. It's a loving and holy response to our wickedness. And it's accountability for failing up to measure to God's righteous character. And so if there's wrath, we want to know why it's revealed. And look what Paul says. It's revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. It's revealed against sin. We want to rightly see that God's wrath is reserved for sin, period. God's holy nature demands justice because of our sin. This is what we rightly earn. A little later in Romans In chapter 6, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. And so if you have a job, most of us do, like we earn a wage, right? We do the work and our employer gives us a wage. That is what we earn. And so in the same way, we earn death. We earn wrath because of our sin. So what is the root? What is the root cause of our ungodliness and our unrighteousness? We suppress the truth. Look again at verses 18 through 21. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and foolish, and their foolish heart was darkened. So we suppress the truth. We do not acknowledge God as the creator and sustainer of everything. We do not acknowledge his transcendence over every aspect of our lives, We refuse to see his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. These are all things that God has made plainly evident to us. In short, God hasn't hidden himself from us. And so because of that, Paul says we are without excuse. So instead of witnessing and acknowledging God's glory and what he's made available to us, instead of realizing our smallness compared to his glory, And instead of that, fueling a desperate search for something greater than ourselves, instead of realizing that we're not alone in this creation, we suppress the truth about him. And so what does it look like when we suppress the truth? It's active. It's aggressive. It's a continual striving against the truth. It's not passive, and it's not accidental. We can't claim, hey, I didn't know. God says that it's evident, and so we're without excuse. And so the picture here in Scripture is that of someone holding someone down underneath the water, right? That's pretty graphic. 
And so this summer we went to camp, we went to Snowbird, and one of the things that we got to do, um, that everybody gets to do, is we got to go whitewater rafting on the Nantahala River. And if you've ever been in the Nantahala, it is the coldest water known to man. Think about the coldest water you've been in, subtract 50 degrees, and that's how cold it is. I, I watched our youth chatter in the middle of July. Uh, they were so cold. So because it's so cold, people like to try to knock each other into the water, right? And so one middle school boy, in not his brightest moment, decided that he was going to try to knock Jacob Blue, one of our elders, into the water. And if you know anything about Jacob, he is a mountain of a man. And so that did not work out well. And so the little middle schooler runs off, but not before Jacob says, I'm gonna get you, all right? So we get a little further down the river, and there's this boat stopped in the middle of the river, and it's Jacob's boat, and he's waiting for this middle schooler, right? It's a calm portion of the river. The water's only about waist deep at this point. And sure enough, there's no way around it. Our boat comes up to him. Jacob grabs this middle schooler, throws him into the water, and then holds him down, right? That's the picture here. The kids survived too, in case you're wondering. So... Um, but that's the picture here. If we are not seeking God, we are suppressing the truth, and that's the only two options that we have. And so when we suppress the truth, look at what happens. Look at verse 22. It says, professing to be wise, they became fools. And that word fools there, that's moron. That's where we get our word moron. So professing to be wise, they became morons and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So they became fools. They became morons. And why? because they turn to idols. We turn to idols. We turn from the creator to the created, right? We turn to the counterfeit instead of the original. And this is idolatry, and that is the root cause of our sin. Instead of giving God the exclusive honor that he deserves, we replace him with something that he made in his creation. And so here Paul says that we have replaced God with the image of man and with nature. And so if you think back to your history books when you were in school, we've all seen the little carved statues, right? We are, we're all familiar with the Roman and Greek gods of nature, and that's what man has decided to worship. We worship those instead. And quite frankly, how absurd is that? To think like, I'm gonna make something with my own hands and then say that this is my God. I'm going to make up a story about this, and then I'm going to worship that. That's like my kids telling me how to parent, right? They're the creation, I'm the creator. Them telling me how to parent. That's not how this works, right? Right, kids? They refuse to nod. So, we'll see an absurd example of this in just a minute. But what about us? I'm going to wager a bet that if I walked into your house, I'm not going to find any little wooden statues. If I did, I would probably think you're a moron, wonder why you're doing that. But how are we given to idols? 
Look what Martin Luther says. It'll be on the screen. Martin Luther says, whatever your heart clings to and relies on is your God. Whatever your heart clings to and relies on is your God. Look at what the ESV study Bible says. It'll be on the screen too. It hits at this a little bit more specifically. Our modern idols don't look like ancient ones. Images served today are often mental rather than metal, but people still devote their lives to and trust in many things other than God. And so what are those things? Think about our money, our job. Think about our status, our identity, the ways that we want other people to perceive us. Think about your family, your friends, your comfort and security. Or what about your opinions and your desires? Those are things that sometimes we hold on so tightly to. And in our heart of hearts, I think if every one of us are being honest, we'd have to admit that we are prone to cling to something other than the Lord. We're prone to rely on something other than God. And we all derive our worth or well-being or our satisfaction from something in creation rather than the Creator. Every single one of us are guilty of pursuing the counterfeit, and we are guilty of abandoning God's design for us. And so what's the result? Look again in verse 24 in Romans. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So God gave them over to their sin. He removed the restraint and allowed the ever-deepening decline of man. Basically, he allowed us to go as far as we want to go. In exchanging the truth of God for a lie, for a counterfeit, Paul shows us the depth of our own depravity. And look again, starting in verse 28. It says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, to those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And so just an important note, this isn't an exhaustive list. It's a representative one, and so just because something's not listed there doesn't mean that that's not sin. But look at that list. Look at all those things. Does this look familiar? Does this look like our society? Does it look like us? And so that leads us to this current series. So in verse 26, I've read it a couple times, you'll notice that Paul singles out homosexuality and while that's not the only sin that can condemn one to hell, Paul uses it as an illustration of the depth and extremity of our depravity. Look at how Paul describes it. He says that it's degrading 
It's unnatural. It's indecent. And so we want to highlight right here, it's not unnatural because of our subjective feelings about it. But it's because it's unnatural compared to God's explicit design and creation, which we've seen over the past couple weeks. So it's not about what I feel that I think it's wrong. It's not about what someone else feels that they think that it's right. But it's about what God's intent and purpose is. And so... I want to draw your attention to what Sam Alberry says. It'll be on the screen. And so he wrote a book, Is God Anti-Gay? And so that's one of the resources I would commend to you on this topic. Um, but he really hits at this point. He said, this shows why it is not true to say, but God made me this way. Paul's point in Romans 1 is that our nature, as we experience it, is not natural as God intended it. All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. As we reject God, we find ourselves craving what we are not naturally designed to do. This is as true of a heterosexual person as of a homosexual person. So here's the point. God takes this seriously. God is clear and explicit when it comes to the inversion of his good design. He's not ambiguous about it. And I want to note here, this isn't limited just to Paul's writing, right? In his time, when he wrote this. This is timely and it applies to us now, here in 2022. The expository commentary talks about this. This will be on the screen. It says, while Paul can be taken as describing the morals and practices of the Greco-Roman world he had been raised up to evangelize in, and we're going to hit on that in just a few minutes. These verses describe observable human behavior as judged by God's standards in all places and times. Heinous qualities, indeed, such as those Paul describes, are not confined to certain eras, geographies, or demographics, but are endemic to the fallen human condition. And so it's important... Because one of the objections that we hear is that, oh, the Bible's outdated, right? That, that humankind has progressed be, beyond these antiquated notions of gender and sexuality. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But God's view on sin applied then, and it applies now. And so in reference to our sin, what's the penalty? What do we get Verse 27, and even down into chapter 2, talks about we receive the due penalty of our error. Again, due refers to what we've earned. Think of due process. Our punishment is just and right. We have earned this penalty. And so what does this penalty look like? For one, we can see current consequences. If you look all around you in this world, you can see the consequences. You can see moral decay. You can see family breakdown. In my own life, I can see the consequences for my own sin. But there will also be eternal consequences because God will deal definitively with sin in his sovereignty, right? He will crush sin once and for all. And those who have not repented and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they will experience the full fury of his wrath, the due penalty for their error. There will be no escape. The Bible is abundantly clear on this. And so don't be fooled just because we don't see it right now. But there's another aspect of wrath that's laid out here. 
And honestly, it's one that I have skipped over a hundred times reading this passage. But here it is. The presence of homosexuality and all other sin are evidence of God's wrath revealed. This is God giving us over to our sin. That's why it says, for this reason. Our ever-deepening pursuit of sin, us getting what we ultimately desire, that is part of God's judgment against sin. So our sin leads to his judgment, but judgment leads to further sin. So where does that leave us? So Sam Alberry, who I just referenced, he did an interview this last week with Russell Moore. And in it, he said that Christians, we have this tendency to get angry because it feels like we're losing some of these culture wars issues. We don't like where the world is headed. We're not used to these things. And it's like all this just popped up and we're caught flat-footed. And we can really work ourselves up because of all of this. But let's remind ourselves that this isn't new. As we went through Ecclesiastes, what did Solomon remind us? He reminded us that there's nothing new under the sun, that Scripture is full of man rejecting God's design and pursuing counterfeits. It's full of God revealing his wrath by giving man over to his sin and getting exactly what we want. So we're going to take a look at some of these examples. And so... This is where we come to the Bible drill portion of our service. So if you have your Bible, you got to hold it like this. This is the official way. And then when I give a reference, we, the first one that gets to the reference gets a prize. So we're going to start in Genesis uh, chapter 19. Some of these references will be on the screen. So I hope that you will turn with me in God's word. So Genesis 19, this is probably a familiar story to many of us with Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, Genesis 19, starting in verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. So you see what's going on there? But Lot went out to them at the doorway, and he shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations yet with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. So Lot tries to hold the men off and even present something even oh, just as disgusting. He offers up his daughters, tries to placate sin with more sin, doesn't he? Start again in verse 9. But they said, stand aside 
Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them, meaning the angels. And so Lord only knows what they intended there. So they pressed hard against Lot, and they came near to break the door. But then the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whoever you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So we see the men in this town, they're exceedingly wicked, and ultimately God destroys the city as a result of their sin. Flip over to Exodus chapter 32. And so while in Sodom and Gomorrah, those were unbelievers, people that did not know God, we're now going to look at what we would consider believers. We're going to look at the people of God. So Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go up before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are on in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf, and they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Their moron is showing through right there. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast for the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once. For your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have, they have quickly turned aside from the way which I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and who have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. So Moses has gone up on top of the mountain to receive the commandments, and the people quickly abandon God, right? And so notice here, you see the idolatry, and then comes the perversion. And you may ask, where's the perversion? And so we want to remember that this was written in Hebrew. And so when it says that the people rose up to play, that misses the meaning in English. Look at what John MacArthur says of this word. This will be on the screen. It says, the Hebrew word allows for the inclusion of drunken and immoral activities so common to the idolatrous fertility cults in their revelry. It's a very PG description of what's going on. So skip down to verse 25. It says, now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. 
And all the sons of Levi gathered to him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from the gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did just as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So Moses calls the people to himself, and the Levites, those from the tribe of Levi, apparently kill 3,000 that were still engaged in idolatry and immorality. And so we want to remember that this was God's people that was engaged in this. And because of this, God had to give out so many instructions for his good design on our sexuality, on our gender. So turn to Leviticus now. I told you there was a lot. Turn to Leviticus chapter 18. So in Leviticus chapter 18, starting in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. And so skip down to verse 20. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, a foreign god, nor shall you profane the name of your god. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Then skip over to chapter 20. And look at verse 10, starting in verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If there is a man who lies with his father's wife, hang on to that, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed incest. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And so we see this isn't what God intended. We see this euphemism for, for sex. And all of these, and not just the ones I read, there's tons of them that God lists. They're all counterfeits to God's design. They're all unnatural derivatives, right? And God lays this out because this was happening. Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22, we're looking at verse 5, and it says, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a, put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. 
And so this is more than just a toddler walking around in his mom's high heels. I think we've, we've all seen that. But this is women adopting the role and characteristics of a man and men adopting the characteristics and the role of a woman. This is where we get our, our teachings on transvestites, on transgender. And while they, they didn't have the technology to transition like we see now, they are still going against God's design. They are going against his design of man and woman found in Genesis chapter 1, which we looked at the past couple weeks. And they are counterfeiting the God-given attributes of the opposite sex. Look at what John MacArthur says about this. He says, the word translated abomination was used to describe God's view of homosexuality. The creation order distinctions between male and female were to be maintained without exception. Here's the point. It was around and it was engaged in. This was a practice that was associated with pagan temple prostitution. God had to warn us. And that's just a handful of these instances. So I'm from the world of higher education. If you've been to college, we, we believe in supplemental readings, things that we want you to read that you're not necessarily going to be tested on. And so I'm going to give you some homework assignments. Read Numbers chapter 25. Read Judges chapter 19 through 20. We, we didn't get to talk about Lot and his daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah. We didn't get to talk about Judah and Tamar, his daughter-in-law. We didn't get to talk about Amon and Tamar, who were uh, son and daughter of King David. The Bible is full of these perversions of God's design. And in the New Testament, it wasn't any better. So in contemporary times, when Paul wrote Romans, he wrote it from Corinth, counterfeits were dominant in the contemporary culture. It's not just that they were there, they were dominant. And so Greek culture held that homosexuality held it as the highest form of love. And so it was not uncommon for wealthy Greeks to maintain male lovers in addition to their wives. And in Rome, if you think about the emperors, the first 15 emperors, 14 of them were homosexual. So if you put that into presidential terms, it would be at least 60 years before we saw that sort of street. And so most of us in this room would be dead by then. But again, this highlights that this isn't a new phenomenon. And this is also why you can't argue that, hey, we're, we've progressed past that antiquated notion. We've pr progressed beyond the outdated teachings of the Bible. You can make the argument that it was more pervasive then than it is even now. But let's look at 1 Corinthians. If you know anything about 1 Corinthians and the Corinthian church, that was a messed up church. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so we want to remember that this is a letter that was written to a church, written to a group of believers here in Corinth. And so they're very much like us. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is Paul writing. He says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and the immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, so unbelievers don't even engage in this, that someone has his father's wife. So basically, 
sleeping with his stepmother. If you remember, remember in Leviticus, we covered that, right? Paul says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned it, and instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So like I said, a man is sleeping with his stepmother, and this was considered evil by unbelieving Gentiles. This was even considered illegal under Roman law. All the things that we've talked about today, all that was good, except for this. And the church was proud of this. They were proud of their tolerant attitude for this guy. And Paul says, get this guy out. Remove him from your midst. And Paul turns him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, but with the goal of repentance. So skip over one page to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Looking in verse 9. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So we see another list, just like we saw in Romans. And again, we see a consequence. There's eternal separation from God. But look at verse 11. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. And so we want to remember, this was a letter written to a church. Somebody came when they got this letter, stood up in front of the church, and they read it, and it was addressed to this specific body. And Paul is describing those in that church. And so as Paul's writing this list, as it is being read, you can just imagine, everybody's looking around at everybody. They know exactly who Paul is referencing here. They knew each other. They knew who Paul was talking about. Such were some of you. But here's the hope. Look at the rest of verse 11. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. And there is the hope that they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified. And that is our hope. That is the only hope. And it is only by God's grace it's only by Christ's death on the cross that we can be both saved and delivered from our sin. There is no limit to God's grace, and there is no sin which God's grace can't cover. So think about this. For thieves, there's grace. For drunkards, there's grace. For idolaters, there's grace. For adulterers, there's grace. For homosexuals, there's grace. For transgendered, there's grace. Church, do we believe this? Do we really, really believe that? Paul reminds them their sin is serious. 
there are consequences. Hell awaits the unrepentant, but God's grace has delivered them from their sin. They are no longer who they once were. So look what John MacArthur says about their transformation. This will be on the screen. It says, while believers can and do commit these sins, they do not characterize them as an unbroken life pattern. When they do, meaning as an unbroken life pattern, when they do, it demonstrates that that person is not in God's kingdom. True believers who do sin resent that sin and seek to gain victory over it. Sanctification results in new behavior, which a transformed life always produces. Sin's total domination is broken and is replaced by a new pattern of obedience and holiness. Though not perfection, this is a new direction. And so here's the deal. Only Jesus can deliver us from the power of sin. It's only through Jesus that we can experience holiness and this new pattern of life a new direction. And it's only by Jesus that we can experience God's good design and cast away the counterfeits. And so we want to be clear, that doesn't mean that the temptation is necessarily gone. For some, when they come to faith, that temptation will be gone and praise God, right? We hope that that's the case. But for others, that temptation remains and it may remain until the Lord calls them home. But only through God's grace can temptation be resisted and overcome. And so let's remember that the reverse order doesn't work. And that's something that we really preach here at The Journey. Unbelievers, people in sin, cannot get rid of their sin before they come to Jesus. God doesn't call us to clean up ourselves before he'll save us. And in the same way, LGBTQ people cannot get rid of their sin and their lifestyle before they come to Jesus. They can't clean themselves up so that Jesus will save them. They can only be saved by coming to Jesus through faith and repentance. Only Jesus can wipe away their sin. Only Jesus can deliver them from their lifestyle, and only Jesus can deliver them from temptation. So for anyone, whether you're LGBTQ or not, the only hope for salvation, the only hope for deliverance from sin, the only hope for us experiencing God's good and perfect design and for rejecting the counterfeits, the only hope is to be washed, to be justified, to be sanctified in the name of Jesus. So we have four applications. So application number one today, we just touched on it. The only hope is the gospel. So just as we've seen that this isn't something new, that it's not new to our modern culture, In the same way, we don't need a new solution. The only solution there is, is the gospel. The gospel was sufficient then, and it's sufficient now, and it will be sufficient tomorrow. So let's anchor ourselves only and always in the gospel. All right, application number two. We all need Jesus. Every single one of us has found ourselves on one of these lists that we went through. Every single one of us has fallen short of God's holy standard. The wrath of God is revealed against each of our ungodliness and our unrighteousness. Each of us is without excuse. Each of us has pursued the counterfeit. So let's remember that our sin is not less. It's not any better than anyone else's. Our sin, my sin, Your sin is serious and it's deserving of wrath.
We can't save ourselves. Each of us needs a savior. So come to Jesus in faith today. Believe and repent. Application number three. LGBTQ people, they need Jesus. Their sin is not too great for the grace of Jesus. And if this is you, your sin is not too great. Your sin is serious and deserving of wrath, but God's grace is greater. Come to faith in Jesus. Believe and repent in him today. So our last application, application number four. The LGBTQ community, they need the gospel. And if they need the gospel, we have to take it to them. We have to take it to them. And I don't pretend to have all the answers on what that looks like or how that needs to look, but we have to take it to them. And here's what I know. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be messy. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to seem unfruitful and a waste of time at different points. And most likely, most likely we'll be rejected. But we want to remember, such were some of us. Such were some of us. We needed the gospel. Each of us needed a Savior to deliver us from our sin. They can't save themselves. And so if one comes to salvation, and I don't want to say just if, I want to say when. When they come to salvation, here's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate We're going to love them unconditionally. We're going to disciple them. We're going to strive with them in their sanctification. We're going to strive with them against their temptation because this is the call of the gospel. And so as we close, let me leave you with one last thought from Mark Kent Hughes. He kind of gets at this. So this will be on the screen. This is a a two-parter. So R. Kent Hughes says, as our society has moved further or as our society has moved downward toward the beast, no one seems able to say this far and no further. No one can put a limit on sensuality. What is the answer? Why does God give a civilization over to this kind of thing? That's that question that Sam Albury was hitting on. He does it because when the darkness prevails and despair and violence are widespread, men and women are most ready to come to the light. He gives mankind up so that in their despair they might give themselves to his grace. Did you catch that? He gives mankind up so that in their despair they might give themselves to his grace. Do you you remember Isaiah's prediction? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Against the growing darkness of our own time, we need to make this message as clear as we possibly can. By our testimony, by our lives, by the joy and peace of heaven in our hearts, God has found a way to break through human weakness, arrogance, despair, and sinfulness to give us peace, joy, and gladness. Just as Jesus was born in Bethlehem so long ago, so he can be born in any person's heart right now. This is the good news of the gospel. In this decaying world in which we live, we can see again the glory of this truth as it delivers people from their sins. 
You shall call his name Jesus, that precious name. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Stand and pray with me. Lord God, you are a holy God, and you are a loving God. You are gracious, and you are slow to anger. You are rich in love. You are rich in grace and in mercy. Lord, this is a hard word to preach, but we know that it is for our good. And so God, in your sovereignty, call sinners to yourself. Bring sinners from death to life through your grace. Do the work in us that only you can. We repent of our sins and we're thankful that you are faithful to forgive us for our sins and to deliver us from our sin. Fill us with your grace. Fill us with your truth as we go out to the world. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus.